Gary Parish. It's Saturday, June second, two thousand eighteen. Welcome back to the Iowa College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and the deadline for underclassmen to withdraw from the NBA draft it has come and gone. We're going to get into some of those develops in this podcast, but I wanted to start with uh, some coaching news because our buddy Adrian Wojnarowski at ESPN reported on Friday afternoon that John Beeline, Michigan's coach, has interviewed for the vacancy. Uh, with the Detroit uh, Pistons. So that's obviously an, an interesting development. It's not like it's been reported he's the leading candidate or he's in negotiations, but he has sat down and talked with the Detroit Pistons. So, Norlander, let's just start there. Are we, for the second June in a row, about to lose a Big Ten coach? Great point, Parrish. I was thinking about that earlier this morning when I was getting ready to do this podcast. I thought, well, damn, it's June, and we went through this a year ago with Holtman going to Ohio State. Um, but different scenarios, whereas um, Thad Mata was fired, John Beeline, if he were to get the Pistons job, would leave uh, of his own volition here. It's an, in, it's an interesting little plot twist here in college basketball. Beeline is worthy of the interview. There's no doubt about it. Um, he's 65 years old, and my favorite fact about John Beeline, I think we said it on the podcast before. I know I've written it, and I was, uh, I was talking about it at the Final Four when we were there. He might be – I know for a fact this is true. He has never been an assistant coach at any level. He might be the only head coach in college basketball that has never been an assistant once in his life. He got a head coaching job in high school, parlayed that, and over the years, you know, Canisius, West Virginia, Michigan, and so on. He has only ever been a head coach. It would be kind of cool if he wound up getting offered the Pistons job and taking it if his career – you know, hit that peak at the ultimate level of the game, he'd be a head coach there. And it's kind of a path that's really, really hard to duplicate, especially in this modern age. You know, when John Beeline came up and was growing up, um, you might have had the op- ability and opportunity to get in as a head coach at a high school level. And maybe if things broke right for you like it did for Beeline, uh, he could do that. But really, what he's done is is very hard to replicate for, uh, for almost any other coach. As for the Pistons, Parrish, they've been – They've been struggling here for relevance for, what, about a decade or so? Um, if you run down recent coaches, you've had Stan Van Gundy most recently, below 500 winning percentage. John Lawyer, I have no idea who that is. 250 winning percentage. Mo Cheeks was 420 winning percentage. Lawrence Frank, 365. John Kuster, 348. Michael Curry, 476. The last time Detroit was relevant as an NBA franchise was when the late Flip Saunders was there. He went uh, 176 and 70 for a 715 winning percentage. Uh, point is, Detroit is, is definitely one of those NBA markets where unless they're really, really good, People just don't talk about him. It's one of those things. And if you get beeline, you get an accomplished and well-respected basketball mind. It makes a ton of sense for that franchise to, at the very least, interview beeline. And now that this news has come out, Parrish, I'm actually a little surprised in retrospect that maybe there wasn't a little a scuttlebutt about that just because he clearly is considered um, a basketball savant, uh, particularly on offense, to the level where it would make sense for him to be open to some NBA gigs. What are your thoughts on that? Well, circling back to your point, he is, as far as any of us know, the only Division One head coach who has never been an assistant coach at any level. He graduated college in 1975, uh, got hired as the head coach at something called Newfane High School, and has never not been a head coach since then. That's, that's two years since before I was – that's two years before I was born. He's never not been a head coach since then. He went from Newfane High School to Erie Community College to Nazareth to LeMoyne to Canisius to Richmond 
to West Virginia from 2002 to 2007, and he has been the head coach at Michigan since 2007. Throughout his career, he's been the um, Big Ten Coach of the Year. He's been the CAA Coach of the Year. He's been the MAAC Coach of the Year. He was the 2018 CBS Sports National Coach of the Year. He's been to two Final Fours. He's won two Big Big Ten tournaments. He's won two Big Ten regular season championships. He's won the NIT. Uh, Just an amazing career, and I I agree with you. I don't think that's something that can be replicated um, these days. Like, I don't think there – that's not the path to becoming a Big Ten head coach, um, you know, in in the year 2018. But but it it worked for him um, when he did it and how he did it. And, you know, he's 65 years old with some – you know, pretty great options. Like perhaps he goes and coaches uh, the Detroit Pistons, or he just remains at at Michigan, where he's making well over three million dollars uh, per year, and where he has a good team coming back. And I I don't think that's um, to be ignored. You know, he's you know when when Brad Stevens left Butler, and to be clear, he was going to leave Butler no matter what. It was the Boston Celtics calling, but Butler was transitioning into the Big East. It it, it wasn't clear that. It was going to be uh, a simple transition. I think Butler has, has 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 transitioned well, but you know Butler in the horizon is a much different animal than Butler in the in the Big East. I mean, you're suddenly recruit, you know, playing against. Uh, and, and I know that Butler went from Horizon to the Atlantic Ten to the Big East, but you know, to to go from the Horizon to the Big East in such a short period of time, you know, you're suddenly you know, playing against schools that are consistently recruiting top 100 kids and top 50 kids and McDonald's All-Americans. And uh, that's not easy. Um, You know, Butler was going into some some unknown territory then, whereas, you know, Michigan's in the Big Ten. It's been the Big Ten forever. John's got a a really good team coming back. I've got them ranked in the top 25 and one. Michigan fans seem to think I have them too low and it's possible that they're, they're right. So he's not running away if he were to leave. From a bad situation, he, he's got good options no matter what. And so then it just comes down to if he gets offered the job, what does he want to do? And I'm pretty consistent on this. I, I don't make career decisions, life decisions for for other people. Um, I can tell you what I think I might do if I were John Beeline, but I don't know what's important to John in, in that regard. You know, is this something that he's always been interested in? Is it something that he's always been uh, curious about is it is it a, a dream to to coach at the highest level of the sport to see if you can match wits with some of the best guys on the planet which I think you would agree would not be a problem for him he's a brilliant basketball mind I don't think he'd have any problem coaching in the NBA it comes down to you know do, do you have the pieces to win because I, I don't care how good you are in that league you're not in control of your roster in college that's the that's the biggest difference between being a college basketball coach and an NBA head coach in college, you are largely responsible for your roster. It will be whatever it is you make it. But in the NBA, you're you're at the mercy of a draft. You're at the mercy of free agency. You're at the mercy of your general manager. And if you've got uh, a roster built to win, you're going to win. And if you don't, you're going to lose. You know, Rick Carlisle can win a world championship or, you know, finish near the bottom of the Western Conference, all based on what kind of roster he has. Rick Carlisle is widely regarded as one of the best five coaches in the NBA. He hasn't had a good team in a while, and it ain't because of him. It's because of that roster. So John's got to, you know, ultimately, if he's offered the job, just figure out what he wants to do. But from the Pistons' perspective, I think it makes a, a lot of sense. And from his perspective, at the age of 65, 
if this were something that I've always like had in the back of my mind, man, wouldn't it be great to just coach basketball, not have to worry about boosters, not have to worry about uh, golf fundraisers, not have to worry about recruiting, not have to be at Peach Jam, not have to be in Vegas, not have to text message 17-year-olds, then I could I could see you taking a shot at this. And if it works out, wow, you're a successful NBA coach. And if it doesn't work out, you're 68 years old, maybe you just hang out with your grandkids. Sure. Um, there are things that uh, – the little things I wonder w- that he'll weigh on his mind, if indeed it gets to the point where – Detroit puts an offer on the table. Should mention that obviously they're going through a bunch of candidates, and Dwayne Casey, the reigning coach of the year in the NBA, uh, that award seems to be something of a death sentence for a lot of coaches because um, I think he's the second coach in the past decade to to win it in the same year that he was fired. But uh, more often than not, the men that win that award are out of their job within three years. It's really bizarre how that pattern has taken form. Um, but the way that NBA coaching hires can go. Um, once you get established in the business uh, and well-respected, uh, you definitely get a second opportunity. In many instances, you get a third opportunity. You can go around the league and look over the past 20 years and see where that's the case. So I, from the outside looking in, not knowing one person who is running that coaching search for the Detroit Pistons, um, I would think Dwayne Casey probably has to be considered the leader. But John Beeline is so well-equipped and so well-respected. And for anyone that's going to get on the phone and talk to someone about John Beeline, you're probably not going to get too much uh, against him just in terms of what he means as a candidate. Obviously, him not having been in the NBA will be the biggest factor. I personally don't think age is a factor at all because the lifespan uh, for the tenure of these NBA head coaches – so frequently with one franchise, you're looking at five, six years. John Beeline can coach till he's 71. That's not a problem. And if you think that under John Beeline, um, you can at least enter into the conversation where you're, you're rubbing elbows with the top four or five teams in the Eastern Conference, that's a massive bump up from what you've been as the Detroit Pistons over the past decade. And for that alone, it's absolutely worth it. But then again... You know, Charles Matthews decides to come back to school, and because of that, Michigan's in our top 25-1, and and it's totally validated. Michigan, I think, is clearly right now with that roster a top 26 team in the nation. Uh, But do things like that, maybe they do, maybe they don't perish, but do things like that where Beeline says, you know, like we don't know what kind of conversations that, um, that John and Charles have had, but just little things like that. Does he think, man, you know, this kid really wanted to go pro. He didn't quite get the feedback that he wanted, but I... You know, me and my staff are telling him, one more year, we're going to turn you into a, a top 40 pick. You know, there's there's no doubt about it. you got that ability. And do things like that impact his decision-making if, in fact, it gets to that point? I'll be interested to see that. Um, and the other factor is, and I don't know how much John does or does not care about this kind of stuff. Obviously, he wants to win the national championship. I believe, Parrish, we talked about this on the podcast the night or the day after he was discussing it at the podium in San Antonio where someone had mentioned about him not having won a national championship and how much it means, and he really downplayed that. Um, but obviously, you know, you get to this point, you want to win the ultimate prize in, in the sport where you've, where you've made your profession and, and uh, just gained so much success over the decades. He's 65. He just made the national championship game. I would think he thinks that he's got the, the ability to get back there and win it all. He is certainly on that top three, top four list of coaches, best in the game to have not won a national title. But does he say to himself, you know, I'm 65. How likely is it 
that I'm ever going to get back to a national championship game, even if I coach another seven or eight years. I know how hard it is. I got there twice. Can I do it? And if I don't think it's that likely, then why not just go and try the NBA? I think those are all going to be factors that he considers, obviously, with the backdrop of this moving toward a point where the Pistons consider him uh, a finalist, if not the guy who actually gets an offer on the table. A couple of things. Your point about Charles Matthews is – is, is I think important. Ultimately, it's it's something that I know, you know, coaches do consider. They leave jobs all the time, but I, and I don't think Dan would mind me telling this story. But Dan Hurley, when he was at at, at Rhode Island, he's obviously at, at UConn now, but he had job offers a couple years ago. I, I think that's well documented and known. I, Rutgers among them, and you know, I I, I don't want to. Uh, misrepresent reality. I think ultimately the reason he didn't take the Rutgers job, like the the main reason is because it was Rutgers, <laughs> you know, like he, I think he knew that he had a good team coming back and, and he would have a better offer job offer than, than the Rutgers job. And so you, you pass and you bet on yourself. And now he's the head coach at UConn seems to work out. But I know that one thing he was struggling with was how do I leave EC Matthews? You know, like that he's been hurt he could have entered the NBA draft. He came back to be with me, and now I'm just going to bail on him. Like, how do I, how do I do that? And and you know, ultimately, he just left some kids from Rhode Island, so you can do it. But it, that weight on him, you know, like, like this this kid came back to school to be with me, and now I'm just going to walk out. Like, you know, he he passed on better opportunities to stay here with me. Now I'm not going to pass, pass on better opportunities to stay here with him. And so I could see John like struggling with that. I, I don't know that it would be a determining factor, but in any life-altering decision, whether you're a basketball coach making it or a basketball writer making it, um, there is a whole bunch of stuff to consider, and that, um, that, is, that is probably one of those things. Um, as for his age, yeah, he's 65. Greg Popovich is 69. I'm with you. I don't think the age is is, is that big of a – is that big of a factor if if you know particularly if you're the Det- from the Detroit Pistons perspective like I would not not hire John Beeline because he's 65 years old he's clearly not slipping you know like sometimes guys get to a certain age and you go eh, I don't know if he's doing it anymore he's he was in the national championship game uh, playing a dynamic brand of basketball just a few months ago um, I'm I'm very comfortable with his age the only thing I would say. And again, these are John's decisions to make, not mine or yours. But, you know, I, I wouldn't hold on too tight to, yeah, I might take the Pistons job, but I really want to win a national championship. Because, you know, as you put it, he's got to try to figure out perhaps how likely is that. And I would just say it's unlikely for everybody. It's always unlikely. You know, there are 351, maybe 352 coming up this season. Um, Division one programs. Uh, the championship is decided by a single elimination tournament of 40 minute games. I, even if you have the best team, it's unlikely that you're going to win a national championship. And so I would that's the one thing I don't think I would let sway me at all. I don't think I would get stuck in. I don't want to leave before I get a title because odds are he's going to leave without getting a title. Almost everybody in this sport, leaves without getting a title. 
Yes, that is uh, that is the reality, and it, I, it's got to be less likely. I mean, by a, a wide margin, if you just put odds on it, um, let alone the competition uh, that he's going to be going up against. And f- for those that might be curious about, okay, so where is Michigan basketball like right now, this weekend, as we're recording this, w- what's going on for the next few days? Well, Beeline is actually in, you know, the rule I believe changed – in recent years, maybe even last year, um, the uh, the under-18 trials for Team USA Basketball um, used to be a situation where um, the coaches that were coaching and selected by Team USA had an advantage. But now other coaches can go scout. Beeline is there with his staff in Colorado Springs this weekend. So it is still business as usual from that standpoint. He has already interviewed for the job. Now we wait and see. You know, I would presume early next week, um, and we're recording this. Uh, it's a rare Saturday off-season podcast. I like this flavor. It's a little bit different. Uh, we wait and see maybe come Monday or Tuesday, um, probably via Woj, if word leaks about any sort of finalists or, hell, maybe it doesn't even get to that point and we find out who gets straight up offered the job from there. I would think from Beeline's uh, angle on this, Wednesday at the latest is when we get some resolution. I just don't see a situation in which he goes and interviews the job for the job, and it's more than a week before we know uh, which way the the the, uh, the franchise, I almost said the program, and NBA's franchises and colleges programs uh, for whatever reason. But we wait and see what the franchise decides or what Beeline decides. It is intriguing, and yes. Uh, it, these these potential coaching moves in June certainly bring uh, just another element of storyline and some speculation to the sport. But let's get down to our predictions, Parrish, here, uh, because maybe by the next time we podcast, we'll know for sure. Uh, is John Beeline coaching the Michigan Wolverines You know, a month from now slash when the season starts, yes or no? I, I would guess yes. Um, if only because I'm not certain he's going to get the job offer, right? There's other high-level candidates, including, as you pointed out, the reigning NBA coach of the year. Um, but I, I would say this, if he got the offer, if he's offered the job, I would say 60, 40, he's going to take the job because, you know, they'll, they'll pay him. It's an NBA job. Like they can pay him um, if they want. And if they want him, that's what they'll have to do. You know, Dwayne Casey is unemployed. So you can, you can, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the job offer is, the job offer is, but you know, they are going to have to, to bid against Michigan for John Beeline services. I think he's making around $3.4 million per year right now. Michigan is a Big Ten school with a bazillion dollars. They can take that number wherever they want or need to take that number. So the Pistons, and this might factor into it, um, you know, they can probably get Dwayne Casey for a lot less than they can get John Beeline. And so who knows how that stuff shakes out. If he's offered the job, I say it's 60-40, he probably takes it because let's just use common sense here. He's clearly interested. If he wasn't, he doesn't even sit down with them. Um, so if he's offered the job, I'd say 60-40 he takes it. But I'm not certain he's going to be offered the job. But I will say this. If I were the Pistons, I think I'd offer him the job. I have an incredible amount of respect for John. Uh, a, as a man, but, but more importantly for the purposes of this conversation, uh, as, as a basketball coach, I really do think he is um, among the best teachers of the game and minds of the game in the world. And I don't mean just Division One basketball. I mean at any level. I think he is one of the great, and I, I think it's important, teachers. I think he's an unbelievable teacher. Like, it, I did a story a few years ago where he was con- consistently taking sub-100 prospects and turning them into, like, two-and-done players. 
like lottery picks or for, you know top twenty picks. Like what? Like they, they his 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 players would go to him and then like Mo, Mo Wagner's. I, I, I don't know where he was ranked coming out of high school or you know obviously he's an international player, but like these guys who aren't necessarily supposed to be pros, they just end up as pros. Trey Burke was just a guy coming out of high school, sub fifty, sub seventy five, sub hundred, wherever he was, and then he's a national player of the year candidate. If not, I don't even remember who won it, but he was certainly on the. He was awesome, and then he bounces into the NBA, and he's still in the NBA. Like John's a great teacher, a great developer, and a great basketball mind. So from the Pistons' perspective, um, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd offer him the job and, and make him turn me down. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see what they do. The one other thing, and then we'll move on. That to me interesting about this is it's not John Beeline interviewing for the Orlando Magic job or the Memphis Grizzlies job. It's it's the Detroit Pistons job in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm I'm one I'm curious about the dynamics of that. How does that play in the market? Because there was a time when I don't think the Grizzlies were ever seriously considering hiring John Calipari from the University of Memphis, but they had an opening and there were some people going, why don't you just hire John Calipari? And that would have been an incredibly controversial thing for the Memphis Grizzlies to do, to take the University of Memphis Tigers basketball coach. Like, hey, go hire somebody else, but don't screw our thing up. Like, it would have been a bad business decision for the Grizzlies to hire the Tigers coach. And I wonder if that's in play at all here. Like, is it a will it alienate Michigan boosters, wealthy people who live in Detroit, if the Pistons take the Wolverines basketball coach? Or is it more like, eh, as long as you don't take our football coach, we don't care? Wonder about that. Also, wonder if they might think. It's the Michigan job. We think we can get someone. But really, Beeline put that train steady on the track. Uh, Michigan, obviously, in the 90s, uh, rose to prominence. Then it was just it was it was a bumpy situation. And this kind of all ties together because you say you'd offer the job to Beeline if you were running the Pistons search. There's something to that. But, you know, Dwayne Casey, the only winning coach in Toronto Raptors franchise history. And if you're running the Pistons and you say, listen, Think about what the Raptors were and how basically they were us for, what, the majority of, of two decades. And then Dwayne Casey gets them to be a number one seed in the East when Brad Stevens is coaching there, when LeBron is in the conference the whole time. And, yes, obviously the Cavs got their own issues, but still he gets them to the number one seed. And even if they flopped in the playoffs, overall the totality of that resume, I think that's why he's probably got to be considered the leading candidate Um but particularly because Beeline is local, and I think it's fascinating. I think Casey will get offered the job. My answer is with you. My guess is that Beeline is coaching the Michigan Wolverines. If he gets offered it, you say 60-40. I will say 50-50 only because of not just the Matthews thing, but he just added two members to his coaching staff last year. Um, I think there just might be a certain sense of devotion for John there where – it's a, it's a tough call. I'll say 50-50. If he gets offered it, though, and he winds up taking the Pistons job, you suddenly then have a top 25 job in the sport coming onto the market, and we'll save that. Like, if we get to that point, we'll talk about it in the podcast. We'll talk about candidates. But we got to even hit that point. Needless to say, it would be extremely intriguing in the lead-up to the July live recruiting period if that wound up happening. But you and I are on the same page. We think when we go out on the road in July, we're going to see Beeline in Michigan gear on the recruiting trail. Last thing. Um, 
because like, you make another good point here. Like that's something that John would have to consider if offered the job. What happens to my staff? Because I don't know that you want to take a college staff completely into the NBA, but to to not do that leaves them all vulnerable. I mean, June is not the time to try to get a job in this sport. And that's something that would weigh on you as a coach. You know, I, I know that, you know, when Ohio State did what they did with that last June, um, and I understood why they did it, as much respect as I have for that and as much uh, as I thought it sucked, um, I totally understood the, the thought process behind it. And, it, you know, here we are a year later, and it seems like um, it was the smart thing to do for the, uh, for the sake of the Ohio State basketball program. But, like, there were guys there that got put in bad spots. You know, Greg Paulus was, was on staff there and, uh, you know, subsequently was able to land an interim job, you know, what amounted to an interim job at Louisville on David Padgett's staff because of, you know, some other stuff that nobody anticipated. But you had people who were expecting to have a job at least for the next year, and then, boom, they're out of a job. Um, and, and there's nowhere to go because they're, you know, the, the, everything's filled. Everybody's got their staffs. And so, you know, th- that's something that would have to, to be under consideration as well if you're, if you're John Beeline and you do get offered that job. But um, that's 25 minutes on John Beeline. I don't even think Michigan Radio probably <laughs> did as much on it <laughs> yesterday. So let's move on. The uh, deadline to withdraw from the NBA draft for underclassmen um, was this week. And... I don't know that there were very many surprises at the end other than maybe Tyus Battle coming back to Syracuse and maybe uh, the Martin Twins returning to Nevada. But there were some big developments. I, it ended up being, uh, anybody who cares enough about college basketball to listen to a college basketball podcast in June probably knows, it ended up being a worst-case scenario for Villanova. Um not a devastating scenario. They're still going to be good. I've still got them in the top 10. But they had four underclassmen when the season ended, and they cut nets, who could reasonably enter the NBA draft. And, and, and really only, at the time, only one of whom was considered a lock first rounder. Now I think probably two are, are lock, lock first rounders. But the other two, certainly not. Although locks to get picked, and they lost all four. Um I, I do think that is probably right there with Danny Manning losing two players who might go undrafted, probably the biggest or at least among the biggest losers um, at the deadline to withdraw from the NBA draft or as it relates to NBA draft uh, d- decisions. But you actually posted a winners and losers column over at CBS Sports. People can find that um, at CBSSports.com. Uh, biggest loser from your perspective, biggest winner from your perspective. Let's get into this, GP. I'm glad you start with Villanova. Um, they take the biggest hit, and yet they're not the biggest loser. But how about this? So I got, I've got two columns. I've got the winners and losers up at CBSSports.com, and then I've got, I've got a Villanova focus column. Um, so Villanova is the eighth team in 20 years, the past 20 years, to lose at least three players to early NBA draft entry right after they won the title. There have been, like, Florida 2006 lost none, and then Florida 2007 obviously lost all those. So normally if you win a national championship, you're losing at least one. The only teams that didn't were Florida 06, Villanova two years ago, and then the Duke 2010 team. Those are the only teams in the past 20 years that did not subsequently lose an underclassman to the NBA draft right after winning at all. Um, 
Villanova has never been in this position before. Jay Wright has never even close to been in this position, Parrish. Losing four underclassmen. He had never lost more than one in a season to the early NBA draft entry before this. It's incredible. Um, And it's why, in that particular column, I just make the point, hey, listen, they've got plenty coming back, and they should be considered the Big East favorites. But at the same time, if you look at the history of all these other teams, and that includes... um, uh, who does it include? It includes, I'm trying to think who the first one was. Was it UConn? It's it's a massive list. They all dip. The only one that really didn't truly dip was Kansas in 2007, 2008. They win the national championship. They come back. Obviously, they win the Big 12, Parish, but they're the only team of those eight that won um, their regular season championship the year after winning a national championship. None of the other teams did. Many of them frequently finished fourth, fifth, sixth in the league. None of them got beyond the Sweet 16. So history suggests that Villanova is set to take a step back next season. We'll see if that winds up being the case or not. They get the biggest hit overall. I'm fascinated by what they have um, coming coming at them next season because I think they're still going to be good, but it's, it's hard to shake that feeling. Um, to me, the biggest loser... And I would, I would define this as what you would have been had your guys returned versus what you are now and factoring in the, 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 what was expected. I think it's probably Maryland because if Justin Jackson and Kevin Herter were to return, I think they would have been borderline top 10 quality. Now, Justin Jackson was expected to leave. Kevin Herter was not. And... I was on the Kevin Herter train since he was a freshman. I thought he was the best player in that freshman class. They had a really good freshman class. He goes, and now without those guys, we'll see what Maryland can do. I, I think they go from you know borderline top 10 team to a team that will probably make the NCAA tournament but is going to have its ups and downs next season. The only other one, and I'll wrap up with losers before we get to winners because I want to get your thoughts too. The only other one that I think is in that ballpark is probably A&M. Now, Robert Williams was always going to go, so he factors in because you lose him, but at the same time, he was expected to go, so I don't really – it's not too much of a hit, so to speak, because this was already part of the calculus. However, Tyler Davis and DJ Hogue both leaving, while maybe quasi-expected, you know, is either guy going to get picked – and if they had come back, to me, Tyler Davis really, I think, is a top 30 player in college basketball next season. And Hogue is probably top 50 overall. And if you lose two players of that quality, like in contention to be all SEC first team guys, you're really going to take a step back. So I actually think A&M, um, if it had had all three and it was never going to, but if you put, if you put a world next season in which Robert Williams, Hogue, and, and Davis return, they're the SEC favorites and they're a preseason top 10 team. And now I don't think A&M is even going to make the NCAA tournament. Um, we touched on, on most of the losers. I, I, I mean, Villanova, again, they're going to be fine. I've got them in the preseason top 10. And, and while I recognize that, yeah, teams that go through what they're going through do tend to slip, I think it's going to be a maybe not a down year for the Big East, but I don't think Xavier is going to be what Xavier has been recently. Um, you know, St. John's with Ponds coming back is, is it, and if they get Mustafa Heron eligible, which I think they're going to. Um, is going to be better than probably it's ever been under under Chris Mullen, but I, I just don't. I think slipping for Villanova, like if you were ever going to slip, this is the year to slip, because I think you're still going to be the best team in the Big East even if you slip. Um, but again, we always knew they were losing Bridges and probably Brunson. Um, nobody before the championship game thought they were losing Dante Divincenzo, 
and Omaria Spellman was always going to be a coin flip. There were actually people who, you know, as of this time last week, thought that he was coming back to school. I never really did. I always projected him to leave. But when every underclassman decision goes the the wrong way for you, um, that, that to me makes you a loser at the deadline. Um, the other big one, and I mentioned it briefly, but, you know, Wake Forest loses Crawford and Moore. And like I know some people are saying, like, who cares? Whatever. Wake Forest was mediocre. They were going to be mediocre. But to lose two players who probably aren't going to get drafted. So, like, it's not like, you know, a kid's going to be a, like with Kevin Herter at Maryland. Hey, you're probably going to be a first-round pick. Got to go. We understand. Like, Frank Crawford's not going to be a first-round pick. Probably not a second-round pick. Neither is Moore. And you lose two guys who ain't getting picked in, a, in what projects as a hot seat year. That's tough. I mean, that's, I mean, that can really – that can change your career. And again, like you don't have to shed a tear for anybody. These are all multimillionaires we're talking about. But that can really mess up your career. It can change your entire career when you lose two guys like that in a hot seat season. So I, I think Wake, Wake Forest, as you noted in the column, also a, a big, big loser. In terms of winners, um, I think it's Nevada because – you know, Caleb and, Caleb and Cody Martin, I don't think we're picking between being first round picks or playing at Nevada, but they were picking between professional careers and amateur careers. And there were a lot of people who didn't expect them to return, especially when Muss went over the scholarship limit. It almost looked like he was preparing for them to go. Uh, obviously, they got a commitment from Jordan Brown in, in recent weeks, a five-star big McDonald's All-American. And yet on uh, whatever night it was, Wednesday night, Thursday night, I can't even remember when the deadline was, you know, they both announced that they're coming back to Nevada. And now, I mean, I got them sixth in the country. And as you pointed out in your column, like that might be too low. Now, the casual basketball fan out there who's used to seeing Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, you know, when you see Nevada up there, it's like, what? Why is Nevada up there? They might be too low. I think Ken Palm's preseason rankings right now have them in the top four because they check every box. Depth, experience, and not just experience like older guys, but guys who are experienced in winning. Pro talent, because Caleb and Cody, are they're, they're pro talents. Um, and, and Jordan Brown obviously is a, you know, a, a probable future first-round pick. And Muss is an accomplished coach, respected in the sport. I mean, this is on paper going to be the best Nevada team in history. And I don't even think you got to, you you know, use your imagination too much to to envision a scenario where this is a top 10 team from start to finish and, you know, a top three seed in the NCAA tournament and, um, you know, a very reasonable pick to go to a Final Four. I mean, this, this team's going to be really, really good. If Nevada was Xavier and all the pieces were the same and they kept the same coach, Xavier would be the number one team in the preseason, I think. And I don't fault you or anyone for this. I, I, I just think because it's Nevada, which is a program that's had success over the past two decades, don't get me wrong. Like it's, it's had some nice runs. It's had pros come out of there, obviously. But I think it's hard for us to, uh, to make amends internally as fans and as media members with saying, 
I'm going to have the Nevada Wolfpack as the number one team in the country. I think they've got the talent and capability to hit number one in the polls next season. Hell, Arizona State flirted with it uh, last season, so anything is certainly possible there. They are the biggest winner, no doubt about it, because of how stacked that roster is. They lost a commitment, which they needed, and now I think they got 14 guys for 13 scholarships, so there's... Still a little tweaking that needs to be made there. We'll be interested to see what um, Musselman does with that staff. The other winner, even though the decision wasn't as big, uh, you know, Kansas stays at number one in our rankings. Kansas will be a universal top three team basically in every mainstream poll, I, I believe, heading into the season. And that is because Yudoka Azubuki is coming back. If he was not, I think you would have seen a lot of disparity with the Jayhawks. Maybe as high as two, maybe as low as seven or eight. I think the fact that you return a big man who is just a massive human being uh, and was such a, uh, a necessary part of a Final Four team, I think that means a lot. So I, I don't think we can overstate how much it means that he is coming back, even if him coming back, like he's not a top-ten player in college basketball. But for the purposes of that roster, I thought that was pretty important. Other teams I have listed as winners include uh, Gonzaga with everyone they brought back. and They weren't at a huge threat to lose, say, Ruri Hachimura or Killian Tilly. But I guarantee you, even if neither of those two players winds up making the NBA, and I think both have a, a good shot at landing on a roster, they've got like 15-year overseas careers ahead of them. They will be fantastically successful in professional basketball no matter what. So they've got a lot of talent and pieces there. They got that back. Nebraska, man, without – and I know Nebraska was like a whatever team last year. And if you're following this podcast, following college basketball, you say, Nebraska was trash. Like, what does this even matter? I'm telling you – Isaac Except Col- they weren't trash. What? They weren't trash. I though. know, but I, I think when people see that a team didn't make the NCAA tournament parish and you're in Nebraska and you're just not on the radar, there's a lot of dismissive attitude toward that. They weren't. They were a they were an average college basketball team. And Isaac Copeland's a really solid player. James Palmer was probably their he was a little inconsistent. He was probably their best overall player. You get those guys back. I mean, it's so huge for Tim Miles' job security. So that's just that's a case where Nevada was going to be good no matter what. Kansas was going to be good no matter what. A team like North Carolina, which got the expected back, and Cam Johnson and Luke May, they were going to be good no matter what. If Nebraska didn't get those guys back, it, it would have been a huge, huge undertaking for Tim Miles to keep his job heading into next season. And, yeah, sure, there will still be a hot seat element. There's no doubt about it. But you've got enough there. So that's why I don't think you can put uh, too much emphasis on, on them getting uh, – both of those guys back. And then lastly, Parrish, before I lobby, lobby it back to you, there were three schools that got single guys returning that I just think will wind up resulting in those teams making the NCAA tournament. I wrote a column on Tyus Battle because to me, he played more minutes per game and overall than anyone in the sport last season. And Syracuse had a th- super thin bench. I think the difference between Syracuse being a top 25 team and being a team fighting to get to into the NCAA tournament was Tyus Battle's decision. I think there was more riding on that than any one single player, okay? Whereas Nevada makes a huge boost because of they have what they have coming back. I think his decision alone meant so, so, so much. Mike Dom to South Dakota State, he winds up coming back. Maybe that was the expected decision, but still at the same time, he, if he really wanted to, he could have opened himself up to the transfer market and basically had his pick of any programs. Nope, he stays back. South Dakota State's going to be really good. And I'm talking like, given that they've got uh, Jenkins Jr., the, the freshman to be sophomore, I think that team has, a, has the possibility to be good enough where they're fighting for the 8-9 line in the tournament. And when you're coming out of the summit, that's a massive accomplishment. So that can't be overstated. And then Shamari Pons, who I thought was going to go pro, 
but makes again, am I just in terms of what his game is, Parrish? To me, he made the right decision because he still has some room to grow. He's not overly efficient, and I do think that playing another year in college will benefit him in the big picture. He comes back. They get Mustafa Heron from Auburn. We wait and see if he's even going to be eligible. He's going to apply for a hardship waiver. But regardless of that, Pond's coming back. Put St. John's, to me, probably in the top four, that Big East. If you factor in Mustafa, they got to be top three. But those are the three programs with single-player returning decisions that I thought were massive. South Dakota State, St. John's, Syracuse, all S schools, they're all going to benefit because of those guys coming back. Let me add one more to that. Indiana? Yeah, I yes, but I think that Indiana's, like with all those schools, Parrish, I think the upshot of those decisions is much more positive in the long term like Indiana is going to be better because Morgan comes back but I don't know if it would have been more than a a one or two win difference overall like they definitely it means a lot and I also think that at least from where I was sitting he was the most likely I guess of the other guys that I mentioned to return but they're in they're in the picture no doubt about it Indiana is going to be fascinating next year with Morgan back obviously bringing Lankford and as I wrote in there like the fan base is expecting like if not demanding because of Romeo coming in, that Archie Miller make the tournament in year number two. I'm not yet convinced that they're going to get there. I almost want to see them. They're like one of the few teams, Parish, where I want to see how they play those first three, four games just to see how this works. But uh, there's no doubt. Hoosier fans will be expecting their team in the NCAA tournament come 2019. I have a higher opinion of Indiana than you do, then, because I, I, think, I think Morgan's worth more than two wins in college basketball. And I think Indiana um, – yeah, I think they're going to be an instantly tournament team. They they at least look the part on on paper. They bring back um, most of the important pieces from, let's not lie, not a great team, but a team that did get better as the season progressed. And then they add a top, I think, 10 recruiting class, highlighted, of course, by uh, you know the Indiana high school star legend, uh, Romeo Langford. So I think Indiana is actually going to be good. I think Juwan Morgan's uh, decision to return was a the right thing to do because like where are you going uh but but b really really big uh, for that program and um before we get out of here let's not forget about uh kentucky you know i i you've got them listed as somewhere in between a winner and a loser um i would say listen they lost a lot and they were always going to lose a lot but given that they've got five-star freshmen who are returning to school. That's not always the case. Um, you know, there's some big decisions that are going to benefit them. PJ Washington coming back to school, uh, I think could be really, really good as a sophomore. Quade Green coming back to school. And, you know, if they're able to land, as it appears, Stanford transfer, uh, Reed Travis, and then reclassify Ashton Hagens, they're going to have a nice blend of, yeah, five-star freshmen, but also five-star sophomores, but also accomplished, older, 22-year-old, um, you know, players like Reed Travis, somebody who averaged 19.5 points in the Pac-12, first-team All-Pac-12. That Kentucky team, if these pieces come together the way they look, the way it appears is going to, and and some of that's based on the decisions made at the deadline, uh, I, I know people like to roll their eyes and, oh, Kentucky's in the top two again Kentucky's number one again how'd that work out for you they're going to be good really good because they're going to be super duper talented like they always are but also I mean there's a big difference between having sophomores and freshmen there just is and as we talked about before John's best teams at Kentucky have in my opinion the best teams were 2010 2012 2015 
And every one of those teams had nice roster balance. Yeah, 2010 had John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, but it also had, you know, uh, Patrick Patterson, an older guy. You know, 2012 had Anthony Davis and and Michael Kidd Gilchrist, but it also had older guys. Three of the top six scores were not freshmen. 2015 had Willie Colley Stein as, I think, a junior. Mm-hmm. The Harrison Twins as sophomores. They had older guys to go with those stud freshmen like Carl Anthony Towns, and that team was the best team in college basketball that season, even if it didn't win a national championship. And so I, you know, I, 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 I don't think you can overstate the importance of getting some of these guys uh, back in school, not just guys, but guys who were going to probably start for you, guys who were going to play big roles for you. Um, that's important. And I think Kentucky was probably all things considered um, a winner at the at the deadline because, you know, theoretically they could have lost everybody. You know, every one of those guys on their roster, if they want to be a professional basketball player, they can be a professional basketball player. So you get P.J. Washington back in school. You get Quade Green back in school. Those are good things for John. They are. I'll be quick with this here so we can wrap up and get out of here. Uh, P.J. Washington, love his demeanor, and obviously he did not get enough feedback to warrant him staying in the draft probably wouldn't have been a top 40 pick and thinks that he can go back develop his game love that you mentioned Patrick Patterson because they're not exactly the same kind of player but man if in year two he can show development and grow kind of the way Patrick Patterson's game grew Patrick Patterson was I believe a top 20 pick when he came out of the draft uh, or came out of Kentucky into that draft in 2011 I want to say you had just mentioned the year but regardless I think he's got a chance I don't know from a draft perspective, how much he's going to boost his stock. That'll be one of the more interesting draft uh, storylines to track throughout next season. But it's so big, in my opinion, that he comes back. And I think he's set up to have a really nice year overall. We wait and see if they get Reed Travis. The, we could still have plenty of, of Kentucky copy here going forward because of the Reed Travis stuff. Ashton Hagens, um, who many Kentucky fans are expecting to reclassify. And if that does happen, yes, there will be a case if they get both those guys for Kentucky to be right there with Kansas atop the polls. Reed Travis is a really good college basketball player. I was I was maybe, in fact, too high on him going into last season, but I've, I've always been a fan of his game. And if he were to come in, he's just a different kind of player. And, in fact, he's the kind of player – not just that him being like a graduate transfer, uh, but just his style overall. Haven't been really too many guys like him at Kentucky under Cal. So we wait and see on all of that. Kentucky's considered the favorite. Perhaps Villanova sneaks in and gets in there. Uh, but we wait and see. I put Kentucky as an in-between because of the amount of talent they lost. And, you know, while Gilgis Alexander turned into a, a, you know, a top 15, top 20 kind of prospect, initially uh, he wasn't expected to be that, but he grew into that. They get Washington back. They lose Vanderbilt. It's sort of a mixed bag, but ultimately um, big picture. I think you have to label Kentucky as a winner, big picture heading into the next season because they are going to be projected as a better team next year than the one that we just saw. And I would be, I would be genuinely surprised at this stage if they get one of Hagen's or um, Travis, if they aren't better than what we saw last year, but we wait and see those decisions should be coming uh, soon. In fact, I would think we'll have an answer on Travis by mid-June at the latest, because he's, he's got to get into a program and get into summer school pretty soon here. That 2010 Kentucky team with Patrick Patterson, of course, lost to South Carolina on January 26, 2010. That's when the legend Devin Downey got 30 points, uh, five rebounds, three assists, two steals, 68-62 upset of the Wildcats. You might remember Kentucky came in 19-0 and into that game. That was the first defeat ever for John Calipari at Kentucky, for John Wall, and for DeMarcus Cousins. Shout out to Devin Downey. 
Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast via app podcast. So please, if you haven't done that already, honestly, if you haven't done that already, like what, what's the point? Like you're not paying attention. Please, please go do that. Uh, rate it favorably. Five stars with nice comments. That's all we ask. And we will, I promise, even if we wait till Saturday morning, I promise we will talk to you again next week. Till then, take care.